Thank you so much, Director, for that kind introduction. And it's lovely to see so many people here. Uh, I express my deep appreciation at the invitation to come to Chicago. Um, it gives me an opportunity to go on a road trip to, uh, to Nashville and Memphis, which we're, we're doing in, 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 February, in, in Friday. But uh, in the meantime, I'm going to talk to you about serious matters, um, beginning with Be My Baby in Babylonia. Um, I'm going to end by telling you how to say that in Babylonian, but there is a certain amount of time that we have to spend before that uh, looking at, at uh, the tablet that you see illustrated on, on the screen there and another tablet as well. For an Assyriologist it's, it's always a very uh, wonderful experience to come to the Orient Institute because this institute is where a magic thing took place over nearly a hundred years, from 1920 to 2011, a group of people, not the same people obviously over such a long time, but a changing group of people, produced one of the most important uh, products of, I, I would say, the 20th century humanities. And I refer, of course, to the Assyrian Dictionary of the University of Chicago, an absolutely astonishing multi-volume work created just two floors above our heads to which all Assyriologists like me are so deeply indebted because this isn't just a dictionary. It's not just this word in Assyrian or Akkadian as we might call it or Babylonian equals this word in English. It's actually an index of a whole civilization because the dictionary collects together hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of contexts in which you see the word working these are words which have been dead for 2,000 years. And this dictionary has brought back to life these words and it allows you to understand them through these uh, many, many contextual references and essentially act as an index to a civilization that is so long dead. And during my career, uh, which is now entering its... No, I won't say which decade, uh, I have... I have use this as a fundamental prop, as have all my colleagues. And we marvel, those of my generation, at those who are older and who had to do without this extraordinary prop, the Chicago Assyrian Dictionary. So much that I'm going to say to you tonight about the text that I'm going to talk about rests upon an understanding that is built on this foundation of the Chicago Assyrian Dictionary. Um, but I want also to talk about another wonder of the 20th century uh, humanities, which was the recovery of Sumerian literature. And you might wonder, why am I going to do that when I'm talking about Babylonian? Let's get it straight. Babylonian is a form of Akkadian, the Akkadian language, which the Assyrian dictionary called Assyrian because it started so long ago that that was the way things were then. Babylonian, Assyrian, Akkadian, whatever you want to call it, this is a Semitic language. Whereas another language we know from ancient Mesopotamia especially from the oldest writing, is Sumerian, which is also a specialty of this institute, going back a long way. Sumerian is the oldest language of writing. That's to say that it has uh, the, the oldest written documents that come from Mesopotamia in the cuneiform script. But so far as we can tell, were written in Sumerian. And during the 20th century, uh, the recovery of the oldest written literatures in human history, written in Sumerian first and also in Babylonian, but especially in Sumerian. This was a most extraordinary feat because Sumerian has no known relative. The language could only be got at through the eyes of Babylonians. And I just want to refer to two um, extraordinary individuals, both connected with the Oriental Institute, who were uh, to a large degree responsible for the uh, recovery of Sumerian literature in the 20th century. Uh, I'll start with Samuel Noah Kramer, who was born in a, a shtetl in the Ukraine in the 1890s. Um, his life was turned upside down by the pogroms uh, against uh, the Jews in the 1890s, and the family moved to uh, the USA when he was about eight, in about 1905, and he had a good Jewish upbringing, I think, in New York. Um, later on, uh, after various false starts, he became a student uh, 
in, in, in Philadelphia and then came here to the Oriental Institute as a postdoctoral uh, fellow, as it as would now be called, working on the Assyrian Dictionary back, back in the second decade of its existence. But he began uh, to discover that the Sumerian texts fascinated him more than the Babylonian Assyrian ones did. And uh, he began to explore them. About the same time in the 1930s, another young man came to the institute. He was called Torkild Jakobsen. He was a Dane. And although he was writing a PhD at Co in Copenhagen in Denmark, he actually came to the institute in the 1930s as a young man to finish it. And he wrote the Sumerian King List uh, here uh, and presented it in Copenhagen as, as his PhD. These two gentlemen then, Sam Kramer and Torkild Jakobsen, met here in the 1930s. Uh, as I've said, they were instrumental in the recovery of Sumerian literature, but they were very different people, a very different minds, very different approaches to, to Sumerian and to the ancient Near East generally. Sam Kramer ended up as Clark Research Professor of Sumerian in, in uh, the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Torkild Jakob, Jakobsen was uh, on the faculty here for a, a couple of decades, but then in the early 60s moved to Harvard. They're both, of course, long dead now. But uh, one colleague uh, commenting on them, especially on the many works that they had um, uh, written for the benefit not of Assyriological uh, colleagues, not for the benefit of specialists like me, but for the benefit of the general public, and observed their different approaches. Sam Kramer tended to see in, in, in the text he was reading the familiar. Whereas Torkel Jakobsen, he, Sam was a very practical man, I think. Torkel Jakobsen, Jakobsen, he had a very different mentality. He was a rather poetic, spiritual uh, mind, seeking the exotic in what he read. And there was a colleague who summed this up by saying, well, it seems that Sam Kramer in his writings wants really to turn the Sumerians into Americans. But, but Torkel Jakobsen, he, he, in his writings, wants to do the opposite. He wants to turn Americans into Sumerians. And I tell this story because it runs to the heart of what we do, of, of, of how we understand the minds, the intellects, the hearts, the souls of the people who leave us this, these texts that have endured in so many hundreds of thousands in their various different languages from the ancient Near East and especially from Iraq and from Mesopotamia. And I thought that today I would introduce to you a couple of texts in which we can try and, and build bridges between ourselves as modern Westerners uh, and the people of ancient Iraq, the individuals who created these, these, uh, these texts. Uh, and I also want to use the, the time to introduce you also to something of the process of a serological research through which we go when we are confronted with a completely unknown, undeciphered object, a clay tablet in the cuneiform script like this one that no one has ever read before, at least not for 4,000 years. How is it that we get from an object like this, a three-dimensional clay tablet inscribed with cuneiform writing, which was deciphered in the 19th century, how do we get from here to a translation that connects with us today? So that's the basic premise of, of, of what, what I'm going to lay out before you. Um, and I've got a, an instrument here that I should, should be able to use because I was shown how to do it earlier. But since I was shown how to do it, uh, the generosity of the Oriental Institute and its, its suppers may have overcome me slightly. So, so you'll have to bear with me if, if at a certain point uh, I become clumsy. Uh, I did refuse the third glass of wine, you'd be glad to know. <laughs> so let's start then with, that's clearly not the right thing to do, so let's try the, try the other, ah, there we are. Let's start then with, with uh, not the big broken clay tablet that uh, was on the first slide, but this small, almost complete clay tablet, which is on the second slide. Um, it's in a collection in Norway. It's, uh, it's an old Babylonian tablet. You can see on the left a photograph of it. You see it's a three-dimensional three object. I, I, I'm talking as if you've never encountered a cuneiform tablet before. I, I suspect that some of you have, and you have to forgive me. 
for uh, going through the basics. But it's a clay tablet, and it's inscribed with cuneiform scripts, which you can see is a three-dimensional script uh, that is produced by impressing a, a, a stylus, a, a reed stylus, on damp clay with the different combinations of wedges, wedge-shaped impressions that make the signs, which are script. We know from the script and the general shape of the tablet that this is old Babylonian, about 1800 BC. So we're reaching back almost 4,000 years to this individual mind who is wishing. No, he's not wishing. And it might be she. We'll find out. But we're trying to communicate with this intellect across that divide. And on the right, you can see the first stage in the, pro in, in the process of, of that, uh, that bridging, uh, which is a line drawing turning the three-dimensional object into two dimensions by drawing the cuneiform signs with utmost care to represent them as they are on the tablet, so that then we can take that forward and share it with friends. You can't do that with a clay tablet. It has to stay for, for, for good reason, for security reasons, in its collection, safely behind locked doors. But once you've got a drawing, you can share it with friends, and people can talk about it, and uh, it can then become a joint effort, learning what the, the, the text has to tell us. So there's your, your line drawing. We can see at once, I, I think perhaps you can see, that there is a line here and a line here that are extra and over and above the individual lines that you see above each line of script. And so you've got a line of script, a single ruling, and then down here we've got a line of script and two rulings, and here again two rulings. And these points of two rulings are where one text ends and another starts. So we've got a very short text here, which is a Sumerian incantation. And it's got a rubric here saying, Gyrpadra, which is the Sumerian word for bone. Now, the incantation ahead of it has nothing real to, really to do about bone, bones at all. Um, it says, the sea belongs to the goddess Nansheh, silver belongs to the goddess Inanna, and I'm afraid uh, excrement belongs to the steppe, because that's where you go to do it. And it then says, in the steppe, a man was crying out. And he was lifting his head to the sky. And that's the end of the incantation. But as I said, it has a little rubric saying it's about bone. So presumably this is some kind of little spell that the, uh, the bone doctor said when he was setting bones. But we're not interested in that. I'm sorry, you may be interested in that, but I'm not going to talk about that anymore. But I've, I've gone through that just to establish that we have a text which has a magical interest. These are texts, little snippets of text, that have a purpose. This is magic purpose designed to manipulate the world around to get to achieve an outcome that is desired, that in that particular outcome is to mend the bone. And presumably the spell was said, I, I think I told you that it was recounted when the surgeon or bone manipulator was setting the bone. The, the third one is also Sumerian. It goes over on the back, which we can't see. Uh, it's very much harder to understand than the, the first one. Uh, but it's also certainly an incantation, which leads us to believe that this, the second text, is also some kind of magic spell. But it's not in Sumerian, it's in Akkadian, the language that the Chicago Assyrian Dictionary explores. And what we can do is move it from its cuneiform wedge, uh, uh, signs into a, trans, a transliterated text where you can see that the signs are romanized, sign by sign, and uh, set out uh, word by word, so that the signs that combine to make a word are hyphenated, and then you will have a gap before the next word. So the first word is written with those three signs, that one, that one, and that one, and the second word is written with these four signs, one, two, three, four, there. And the great thing about the cuneiform script is that it preserves vowels as well as consonants. So we believe that we can say these words because the script is telling us how to pronounce them. And it's highly probable that a Babylonian would, would not necessarily understand a modern Western or Eastern, a modern pronunciation of the Babylonian language, but we try. And it's unlikely that 
ever we will be put to the test until a time machine is invented to bring a Babylonian here to criticize what I'm going to tell you now. Asuch ashtam azaru karanam aneshatim ezetim mei ashpuk. Kima puchadika ramani kimatsinim naskaramma amrani. And that's what it says. Now we know Babylonian now pretty well, uh, largely thanks to the Chicago Assyrian Dictionary. And we can join up these, these signs. And then we can translate them. So joined up, you can see on the left, which is what I've just, just read you out, uh, what the Babylonian probably would say, that's, that's, that's not right. doesn't sound like that at all. But for our purposes, it works. And here's a translation on the right, uh, which is a literal translation. Asuch bashtam, I uprooted the bashtam thorn. Azaru karanam, I am sowing a grapevine. Anishatim izitim me ashpuk, onto fierce fire I water, sorry, water I poured. Kima puchadika, like your lambs, ramanni, love me. Kimatsinim, like a flock of sheep and goats. Nascharamma, seek me out. Amranni, find me. Okay? Now, it's a poem, then, I think we can say, because I won't go into it in great detail, but it, the text that we have here on the left shows all the signs of being organized according to the rules of Babylonian poetry. And I've said that we're identifying it as a magic spell, and magic spells in Akkadian, in the language of the Babylonians, very often use poetic form. And it's a poem with a voice. The voice is I. And the first part of the poem is about I, what I did and what I am going to do. The second part of the poem is about someone else, because it's addressed to a you. I uprooted the thorn, I am sowing a grapevine, onto fierce water, onto fierce fire, water I poured. And that's a halfway point. And then addressing, moving from looking at oneself, talking about oneself, the poem addresses a second person, like your lambs love me, like a flock seek me out and find me. Now, Babylonian is a gendered language. It has masculine and feminine. And the pronouns your in this text are masculine. Now, it has the features of love poetry, this text. It says, love me. It says, find me. It says, seek me out. It's certainly, although it's a spell functionally, in genre, it's really a little love poem. There was no man-on-man, girl-on-girl love poetry in ancient Mesopotamia that we've yet discovered. So I think we can be fairly safe to say that this is a poem in the voice of a girl or young woman addressed to a boy or young man. So we're beginning to get at the voice of the poem now. I've given you this literal translation here, but you know, this is a translation of the kind that a student does for his professor to demonstrate that he understands the words, the grammar, and the syntax. And in Assyriology, we do too much of this, translating to demonstrate our knowledge. But actually what we should be doing as well, especially here, talking to a mixed audience, is translating to bridge make a bridge between the ancient text and the modern audience. So let's try and do that. Here we are. Oh, go back. A less literal translation. Asuch bashtam. I'm through with pulling thistles. Now I've committed one of these cardinal errors if you're a literal Assyriologist by translating bashtum, or baltum, as it can also be, as thistle when there were no thistles. But the point about the word thistle is that all the connotations that we consider, that, 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 that we relate to a thistle, are those connotations that a Babylonian would relate to the Bashtun thorn. It's an unpleasant thing. It gets in the way of your growing, plant, growing, growing crops. And, and when you have to pull it out, you get, get hurt. So I'm going to use the word thistle. 
and the literalists, I'm afraid, they will just have to look aside. I'm through with pulling thistles, she says. Azaru karam. I am going to sow a grapevine or a vineyard. Immediately, you see in this little poem a, a very careful construction going on. For example, the verbs in that first line. The first one is past, the second one is future. The first one is about pulling things up, the second one is about planting. The object of those verbs, the first one, nasty painful thistles. The second one, lovely grapes in a vineyard. Pain and pleasure. So the voice is saying, I experienced pain, but I've had enough of that. I'm going to move to a life of pleasure. Sweetness lies in store for me. But there's one thing. Does anyone spot it? You cannot sow a vineyard. This girl, because we've identified her as a girl, is used to the agricultural life of Lower Mesopotamia. And here she is, well, one of her many descendants, somewhere in southern Iraq in the 1970s. Um, Max got this book, I'm sure. When you went to Iraq in the 1970s, the government was very keen to hand out books to show how advanced the country was. And sometimes in these books, you found these wonderful, beautiful color pictures, which actually showed the opposite. But from, from the point of view of ethnography, they're invaluable. So here you've got three ladies in Babylonia, in the 1970s, reaping barley by hand. The older ones are actually having a, f having a cigarette here, whereas the young ones are doing all the work. She's got a, uh, you see the, side, the uh, reaping knife there? She's doing it all by hand. This is a scene which undoubtedly is the same in AD 1970 and 1970 BC. So here's our girl, here she is. And she's got fed up with this. Because the one thing you've got to do before you sow the barley, before you plough the barley in with a cedar plough, is you've got to clear the land, and that means pulling up the bashtum thorn, the things I've translated as thistles. So she, you can see going on in her head, do I have to do this forever? No, I'd rather not. I'd rather do something else. And our girl in the poem has decided that's exactly what's going to happen. She's going to do something else. Okay. I'll put them as ghosts in the background now. She says, the raging fire I've doused with water. Well, now it's a love poem. And we are immediately here because we have a particular a tradition of love poetry. Think that fire is passion, sexual passion especially. And you think of, oh, who was it? Jim Morrison and the Doors. Come on, baby, light my fire. He wouldn't, Jim Morrison, like to think that a love poem contained within it the phrase or the sentence uh, the raging fire I've doused with water no, that's quite wrong but in Babylonia fire is a, a metaphor for something else it's a metaphor for anxiety for fear, for fever she's been in a fever but she's come through it the fever of making the decision that she's through with pulling thistles and she's going to sow a vineyard. Let's think about this girl a bit more. She works in the fields. She's a young girl. She has dreams about a better life. She works in the fields for her parents. At home, she's a domestic slave. She looks after the fire, puts it out at night, has to start it in the morning. So she's very, this is a very domestic scenario that we've got. And I think like many young women in history, she's thinking about her life and, and what it holds in front of her and thinking perhaps she can alter it, she can go out there and change her life. And she's come to a decision. She's doused the raging fire with water. Now she's calm. Her fever has gone. She knows what she's going to do. And we'll come to that in a moment, I think. 
<clears throat> Let me just see what the next slide is. Oh, yes. Right. Okay. She's at that point of life, perhaps, as a young girl, when she, her body has changed. She's looking forward to a life that must clearly mean moving from her parents' house to the house of someone else. Because the fate of a young girl in Babylonia, as in many traditional societies, is to leave home and to enter someone else's house as a, a, a daughter-in-law, a bride. And this is a, a great rite of passage, of course, involving huge changes for her. She must learn to love a new family. She must undergo the rites of passage of defloration and childbirth. She clearly will be feeling ambivalent towards childbirth because in a traditional society where there are no modern obstetric miracles, so many girls didn't survive <coughs> childbirth. So the pleasure of looking forward to having a family is slightly uh, dampened by the fear of what might go wrong, the fear of death. So did she like many girls in history, knows that this is what's coming to her and she's thinking about it. But something has catalyzed her. And I think this is the second half of the poem. Love me as you love your lambs, she says to a boy or young man. Look for me as you look for the flock. Find me. Now this is interesting because the geographical focus and economic focus of the poem has changed from the barley fields where you work in the field and you pull the weeds and you have a domestic life in the house looking after mum and dad and your baby siblings. The focus is now on another person and this other person doesn't belong in the barley fields, doesn't belong with the thistles at all because this other person is quite clearly a shepherd. Now, I couldn't find a nice photograph of shepherds in modern Babylonia that could quite match the picture of the five women with the cigarettes in the barley field, I'm afraid. I've had to revert to uh, a textbook of Mesopotamia, which itself reverts to a picture of somewhere in northern Iran in the 1970s. But it's important because it shows that the, the, the grazing of sheep and goats who were, which were herded together in, in ancient Mesopotamia, takes place in a very different environment from where you grow flocks for most of the year. The sheep and goats were allowed on the arable fields for a part of the growing season, but then they had to get off or they would destroy the crops. And there was this pattern of seasonal migration of parts of the family with the sheep and goats, off, often very, very long distances away from the low-lying arable land to the uplands, to the hills. These are extreme hills, but they'll do. They stand for the hills surrounding Babylonia where the pastoral nomads took their sheep and goats. The boy that she's crying out to belongs here, not, not in the arable. Well, uh, sorry, uh, too far, too clumsy. I let something go there. You shouldn't have seen that. Be patient, please. This poem, which is so very short, but has so much depth in it and so much information that it's giving us about the aspirations of this girl, is set in a, a cultural context that we don't understand because we're not Babylonians, but we can get a glimpse of it. There is, in Babylonian thought, mythological thought, a symbolic union between the goddess of sex and love and war and the shepherd goddess, God. The archetypal courtship among the gods was between Inanna, the young goddess of sex and war, and Dumuzi, the divine shepherd. So whenever you have a courtship in ancient Mesopotamian literature, 
it will, to some degree, reflect the underlying prototype courtship between Inanna, who lived in the city, and Dumuzi, who, who, who grazed his flocks outside, away from the city. So a Babylonian, hearing our little poem, would immediately project onto the figures there, the girl talking about her life and her aspirations, and then talking to the boy, would immediately project onto those figures the story of Inanna and Dumuzi. And I've just given you here an extract from a Sumerian poem, Sumerian poem, not an Akkadian one, about Dumuzi and Inanna. There are lots of them, and they, they relate the courtship, the courtship and finally the marriage, the wedding of Dumuzi and Inanna. And she says, let him bring, let him bring, let him bring things in abundance. And he says, my sister, I shall bring them with me into the house. Let him bring lambs as well as ewes. My sister, I shall bring lambs as well as ewes. Let him bring kids as well as goats. My sister, I shall bring kids as well as goats. So the Demuzi Inanna idea lies underneath our poem, certainly, as this kind of subtext. But that doesn't change my view, that it's about a young girl thinking in terms of love for the first time in her life. While we're here, we might say that this is a very profound contextualization of the love between a young woman and a young man, in that it brings together the two very separate halves of Babylonian society and economy. That it kind of says that... An, uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if the love between a young woman and a young man in some deeply signified way unified the two different worlds of the Babylonian economy that the two halves of the world the pastoral nomadism and the agricultural settlement these were brought together and it wouldn't be the first time in history or it wouldn't be the last time in history when the idea that love can heal the world has been out there as an idea that I think is deeply embedded in the longing of young people. And you think of all those 60s songs about love healing the world, and I think you begin to see uh, that this is perhaps not universal, but fairly universal sentiment among ideal idealists. Well, there she is. Um, our young girl. Why do we feel as if we know her? At least I hope in the way that I've talked about her that you feel this is some mind that you can relate to. This isn't someone alien. This isn't Jacobson's Babylonian. But this is actually Sam Kramer's Babylonian. Not exactly an American, but the same as us. A girl with hopes, aspirations, wanting a boy, saying... I'm over here, please find me. She's seen this boy. I don't know where she saw him. It could have been at the well when she went to get water and the, the boy came with the flocks to get water for them. It could have been one of those occasions when the Babylonian girls danced in the streets and the boys hung about watching, thinking, ah, yes, I, I quite like the look of that one. Could have been any of those occasions. But the point is that she's seen this boy and she's waving at him metaphorically, to say, I'm over here, look at me. I'm the one you want. I'm ready for you. I'm ready to make the leap. I think there are many such girls in human literature. I think we see a lot of them in 19th century novels, don't we? And uh, you've already seen this one. This is Natasha Rostova in War and Peace, beautifully portrayed by Ludmila Savelyeva in Sergei Bondarchuk's dramatization of War and Peace. And you remember the story of Natasha at the beginning of, of War and Peace. She's a 15-year-old. And she herself, and, and Tolstoy has this extraordinary ability to get into the psychology of this young girl. She is thinking in exactly the same terms as our Babylonian girl. She knows she's going to grow up. She knows that there's going to be a man. She wants to see this man. She wants to be found by this man. And it's all going on inside her mind. And she goes to the first ball 
she goes to her first ball, and no one chooses her. And she stands there, like this sad face, it's wonderful. No one's choosing her. Oh dear, it's not going to happen for Natasha. No one's ever going to want her. Until, of course, Pierre brings over Prince André and the plot moves on. Natasha has found her baby. Be my baby, says Natasha. And André says, yes. 19th century novels and a fool of our girl. But I just, you can probably get the resonances in the title of this talk, Be My Baby in Babylonia, that I think there is now, uh, today, perhaps a greater resonance with girls in pop songs. And I could have chosen any number of pop songs to do the musical interlude with. And you're going to get a musical interlude. I don't know whether the Oriental Institute of the University of Chicago is used to this, and what the ancient meisters of Assyriology, God bless them, will have to say about it if they can hear. But we're going to have a little bit of music in just a moment. I could have chosen any number of uh, songs by Doris Day, or Darlene Love, or Helen Shapiro, or The Crystals, Then He Kissed Me. Anyone know that? Then He Kissed Me? Yes. Instead, I chose The Renettes. And here they are. Um, I'm just going to, just excuse me, I've got to lean across and see whether I can remember what I was taught earlier today, how to start this up. Which is to go, we're not going to hear it at all, unless you insist. <laughs> we're going to start there. <laughs> anyone dancing. <laughs> not ready to dance yet. Um, I first met Ronnie Spector when I was eight and I was in my pajamas at home in Hampshire <laughs> allowed to watch the Top of the Pops program and on came the Renettes, these gorgeous exotic girls from New York City. And if you're a little English boy of eight in your pajamas in 1963, you might well be bowled over by the Renettes, as I was. And my jaw fell open, and I thought, this, this is something. And I've had a bit of a crush on, on Ronnie ever since. It's, of course, a fantastic song. Uh, the innovative thing about it is the wall of sound, Phil Spector's wonderful wall of sound in which he threw everything into the orchestration. He wanted to create a sound in pop music like Wagner and he, boy did he succeed. But we're in the Oriental Institute of the University of Chicago so let us put aside the wall of sound <laughs> for one moment and, and look at words because of course the Assyrian dictionary is a dictionary of words. And these are the words, I'll make you happy baby just wait and see. For every kiss you give me, I'll give you three. Since the day I saw you, I've been waiting for you. You know I will adore you till eternity. So won't you please be my baby? And she's doing the same thing as the girl in our little poem. She's waving to this boy who hasn't seen her. She's saying, I'm over here. And if you just look at me and find me, Amrani, find me, I will commit myself to you and I will be yours and we will have a sweet life of raisins and grapevine, uh, grape juice forevermore. Life will be a pleasure. That's what it means for me anyway. So, uh, 
that's that's the that's the Renettes, and I, there's a lot more of that, especially in the 50s and 60s. If you trawl through the back catalogue of these wonderful teen ballads, uh, they're full of this angst of of the the, the 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 wishing to to make this connection, make this engagement to a boy. Of course, there are also the ones that are boy to girl. Talking of which, boy to girl, it was in the title of the lecture, "Be my baby in Babylonia." Boy meets girl, or girl meets boy, and vice versa. So a little bit of vice versa is required. <laughs> and this is the second part of our musical interlude. Uh, and you think I'm being self-indulgent, but no, I'm not being self-indulgent. Excuse me. woman. Everyone knows, of course, it's the next year. It's 1964. It's Roy Orbison. Uh, he didn't do as much for me as Ronnie Spector did, but I'm sure there are people in the audience who remember Roy Orbison with longing, or at least fondness. I'm not being self-indulgent giving you Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison because there is a Sumerian poem that begins Pretty Woman. And it's the same situation as Rory Orbison was in when he was sitting on a wall, nothing to do, in the street, and this girl walks past. That's the story of the song, isn't it? The girl walks past, and he goes, pretty woman, you're so nice, and so forth. And then she walks on, and he says, oh, you're, go you're going, like all the others, you're, you're ignoring me. And then at the end of the poem, she turns round, and he knows he's scored. Well, Pretty Woman in Sumerian, this is a Sumerian poem, it's part of the big thing that you saw at the very beginning that I showed on the first slide, the title slide, a big tablet with lots of different incantations on it. And one of them is this one, Kisikil Saga, which means Pretty Woman. And not only is she Pretty Woman, but she's Sila'a Guba, standing in the street. So she's the Pretty Woman of Roy Orbison, but she's 4,000 years before Roy Orbison. <laughs> oh, I should say, here's the conventional way, of course, photograph on the left, line drawing on the right, and here is a transliteration sign by sign. Now, this isn't the Assyrian, Babylonian, Akkadian language, which they did upstairs. This is Sumerian, the language of Sam Kramer and Torkel Jakobsen. <laughs> Pretty girl standing in the street. Kisikil saga sila gubba. Kisikil karkid muinana. My harlot girl inana. Eshtam ta gubba. Standing at the tavern. So far, so good. She's a girl. She's a prostitute. Oh, pretty woman. The 1990 film with Richard Gere and Julia Roberts ghosting in the background there. She was a prostitute, wasn't she? I couldn't resist putting that in. <laughs> Remember what I said about the experience of reading clay tablets? Some of them go well and produce wonderful things, and you think, that's fantastic. I'm so glad I read that. Others, you think, oh, God, what am I going to do with this? Because it doesn't read in a way that makes any sense at all. This is one of those. Sharsharra, sharsharra, it goes on. Abundant, abundant. Well, okay. Abgal share to the sage. This is not making sense, is it? We're struggling with this. Naa nundum mach inim enkigake. Naa, mine. Nundum mach sublime lips. Julia Roberts, anyone? Inim enkigake at the word of enki. Oh, it's not making sense at all, is it? 
Kisiku, girl, Anni, her mother, Kiri, nose, Hashwar, apple, Urmua, my lap. Ah, oh. And that's it. You think, what the devil is going on? I know it's Sumerian, but you know, Sumerian we can usually understand, but this is just gibberish. So if you just had this, you'd say, there's something wrong here. This, 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 even for Sumerian, it's just not good enough. There's something wrong. And you'd be right, because in fact we have two other properly written versions of this very incantation, one on a tablet in Massachusetts, and the other one in a tablet in Edinburgh, Scotland. And these are written properly. And they go, pretty girl standing in the street, kikisiku karkidumu inana, standing at a tavern. And then you say, instead of sharsharra, it's absharraam. Instead of abgalsha, it's abgalamach inanakam. Instead of ngaanundummach, it's ganunmach, and so forth. This looks a lot better, because it's Sumerian that actually means something. Let's see what it means. Here we are. The reds are where the two, the red letters are where the two, uh, the two texts disagree. But if you follow the Massachusetts and Edinburgh tablets, you get this: pretty girl standing in the street, harlot girl, child of Inanna. All prostitutes were the children of the goddess Inanna because she was the goddess of sex and love, and so prostitutes. That was her patronage. She was a rich yielding cow. That's so much better than abundant, but somewhat connected. She was a rich yielding cow. You've got to know this. She was Inanna's rich yielding vulva cow. Now, here's a word of warning Sumerian is a lot more explicit in the kind of vocabulary it uses than our nice Babylonian, which is much more subtle. Sumerian is very graphic in dealing with sex, but also otherwise. It uses graphic metaphors. Inanna, the goddess of sex, this prostitute was Inanna's rich yielding vulva cow. She was Enki's sublime storehouse. When the girl sat, she was an apple orchard bearing fruit. When she lay down, she was a cedar bough casting shade. Much better than girl, her mother knows apple my lap. Oh, much, much better. But still something about this poem, although we've got now, we understand it, we must say that the one, uh, the, 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 the uh, cuneiform that I showed you first is, is obviously from a tradition that has become severely corrupted to such an extent that actually the scribes copying it really didn't know what they were copying anymore. So you get that gibberish. But we see with the text in its, uh, in its proper form, it's a piece of Sumerian poetry. It has a lot of uh, sexual metaphor in it. It's uh, altogether more sexually uh, direct than our Babylonian poem. Uh, it has some metaphors in perhaps which we understand. When the girl sat, she was an apple orchard bearing fruit. I think probably her cleavage was a bit low when she sat down. And apples were visible below the, the collar. When she lay down, she was a cedar bough casting shade. Uh, we could explore that, but it's quite um, personal, I think. It's an incantation formula for love. So this is another incantation, and it's one for love. It's obviously a man speaking. She's speaking he's speaking about a girl he's seen standing in the street. He projects onto her the idea that she's a prostitute working for a nana, who's the goddess of sex, and that for makes her available. She's voluptuous, sensuous, rich in promise, uh, and beautiful to look at, and obviously beautiful to enjoy. This is a very male, I think, approach to uh, love and the prospect of sex. very different voice than we saw in our Babylonian poem. If we are Sam Kramer, we probably struggle with this a bit more than if we're Torkel Jakobsen, who, as I said, had this mystic sort of idea that, 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 that 
he communed with the Sumerian spirit in a way that Sam Kramer probably didn't. But what you've seen then, I think, are two poems that are very different. The one of which allows us immediately into the mind of the person who's the voice of the poem, the girl. And we immediately recognize her because we know other works of literature, other uh, bits of human creativity in film, in song, in literature, in written literature, which tell us that this is a girl we know, that we, we, we are uh, already acquainted with her. Whereas I think this is a harder mind to get into, this Sumerian mind. I don't myself identify with the voice of this poem in the same way. We've also seen, I think, that the poem in Babylonian gave much more pleasure for many reasons, because I think it was more profound and worked on many different levels as a piece of literature, short though it was, mini masterpiece, I think of it, than this, I think, which is rather hackneyed and rather, you know, deliberate and obvious as a, a poem of appreciation. We've also seen that the one poem was much easier to understand and decipher and put across as a translation than the other one, this one, which gave us tremendous pain in trying to get into the mind of the person who is the voice of it. So between these two incantations, I think we've seen a glimpse of the pleasure and the pain that deciphering cuneiform texts can give to those of us who do it. And we've also seen a glimpse of the way in which, yes, the Babylonians, the people of ancient Mesopotamia, sometimes remind us very, very strongly of ourselves. We can reach out to them, we can understand them, we can identify with these voices. But there are other occasions where they really are alien people, separated from us, not only by the years and the space, but also by a good deal else besides. Thank you so much for listening, but before you clap, I just wanted to tell you that we began with Be My Baby in Babylonian, it's a Babylonia, I wish to give you a little Babylonian lesson. Those of you who are ladies must say after me, Atta Lumari, which means be my baby, spoken to a gentleman. And the gentleman must learn Ati Lumarti, which means be my baby, spoken to a lady. Thank you very much indeed.